Welcome to this sermon from Silver Lake Baptist Church. Our mission is to celebrate the greatness of God with all we are for the joy, hope, and renewal of our community. We are so glad you have chosen to listen to our message. We pray you will be blessed by your time with us today. All right. Well, I get to stand here. I haven't been up here in a while. I've been looking forward to it. Um, Almost a year and a half ago, uh, as part of a sermon, I shared a story about an important part of my life, how I became a Christian. So I'd like to share some more about that story, but with a little different twist. When I was a kid, I was a nerd. You might remember that part. I wasn't a math prodigy or anything. I, I did make mistakes, but I liked math and I was good at it. I remember one time in junior high when the teacher asked the class to do a time-consuming problem. I think he just wanted some quiet time for himself. Here's the problem that he gave us. Add up all the numbers from 1 to 100. And whoever is done first and gets the right answer gets a prize. People started scribbling numbers and adding furiously. We didn't have calculators back then. How old am I? I thought about it for a minute and raised my hand. The teacher looked at me skeptically and said, you must have heard this one before. I I hadn't heard it before, but I had the right answer. Fast forward to college. I had been making terrible choices, partying, doing drugs, skipping classes. I had wanted to be an electrical engineer, but because of my poor grades, I'd have to settle for a degree in math, if I could finish school at all. I'd just failed linear algebra, one of the classes required for math. But I had also just learned that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. I learned that my sin had been keeping me separated from God, but that because of what Jesus did, God would forgive me if I asked him to. I believed what the Bible says about Jesus and trusted my life to him. My life changed. I stopped partying and and went to class. I took that linear algebra class again and got an A-plus this time. But I I still had more to learn. In another math class, computer math, we were given a project that would take several weeks, writing a computer program. I started right away, but I could not get my program to produce the correct results. I could not figure out what was wrong. I tried again, rewriting the program from scratch. It still didn't work. I was getting really frustrated because never in my years of school had I tried so hard but not been able to succeed at something. I rewrote the program again. Once more, it didn't work correctly. The deadline was only a couple days away now. I was desperate. I prayed to God, maybe for the first time about it. God, help me. Why can't I do this? I've always been so good at this stuff. And he answered me, not with words that I heard out loud, but in my heart. He said, I created the universe. I am the God of math and computers and of your life. You can trust me. I realized that the only reason that I was good at math at all was because God gave me the ability. It was not something I deserved credit for. I was able to get the program to work just before the deadline to turn it in. The next quarter, I had to take one more high-level math course to complete my major. In that class, 
I had a take-home test that consisted of just one very difficult problem. I knew that if I tackled this problem in the usual way, it would take several pages of calculations. With that much work, I knew I was, very, I was very likely to make a mistake somewhere and get the wrong answer. I thought back to the problem in junior high, add up all the numbers from one to 100. Back then, when I thought about adding up all those numbers, I knew I was likely to make a mistake. So I thought, maybe I can rearrange things so I'll have a better chance of getting it right. It turns out it was a lot easier, too. Instead of adding 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5, I added 1 plus 99, 2 plus 98, and on. The answer is 5,050. It's about that hard. <laughs> so, so I took that same approach to solve this take-home test problem. I thought of a way to make it simpler and find the answer with only a page of work. Even the professor had not thought of this way to solve it. I knew that God was the Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, that you are the Lord of all. We just pray that you'll speak through me now, through your word, and uh, draw us closer to you. We want to be more like your son. Open our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So Will and I, over these past few years, have been teaching through the, I can't put my hand further, teaching through the book of Acts, the story of the beginning of the Christian church, written by Dr. Luke. Paul had finished his third missionary journey around the year 56 or 57. He returned to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, but some Jews had stirred up the whole city into a riot, dragging Paul out of the temple and beating him. A Roman commander took Paul into protective custody and eventually brought him to Caesarea, the governor of Judea, to the governor of Judea, Felix. Paul was a Roman citizen and the Jews were trying to kill him, even though he had done nothing wrong. But Felix kept him there in Roman custody for more than two years as a favor to the Jews. Felix was succeeded as governor by Porcius Festus. That's, that's quite a name, isn't it? Again, the Jews tried to get him to bring Paul to Jerusalem, planning to assassinate him on the way. But Paul appealed to Caesar so that he would be brought to Rome and tried before Nero instead. Nero wasn't quite so bad as he got later. Governor Festus was in a quandary. He didn't really understand why the Jews wanted to kill Paul, so what charges could he specify when he sent him to Rome? So when King Agrippa came to town, Festus decided to bring Paul's case to him. King Agrippa wanted to hear Paul for himself. So we're in Acts 25, we're at chapter 25, verse 23. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So great pomp and commanders and prominent men. This was a big deal, lots of ceremony, very important. So this King Agrippa, who was he? His, his full title was King Herod Agrippa II. And he was the king of northern Palestine. Because he was Jewish, the Romans gave him the authority to appoint the Jewish high priest. So in that sense, he was the king of the Jews. Bernice was Agrippa's sister. King Herod Agrippa II was not as bad as his father, Herod Agrippa I, 
we read about dying nastily back in Acts 12, or his uncle, Herod Antipas, who was king during Jesus' ministry, or his great-grandfather, Herod the Great, the really bad king back in Matthew 2. So contrast all this pageantry and all the important people there to hear Paul. Paul, who's to, with Paul, who seemed unimportant. But history remembers a lot about Paul and almost nothing of the others who was really important there. By the way, this was not a trial, but more of an unofficial inquiry or hearing. Verse 24, Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both of Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. And since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. This is Festus being political, trying to keep the Jews happy, trying to keep himself out of trouble. He's exaggerating when he says, all the people of the Jews appealed to me. Verse 26, yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. Here's some irony. Festus knows that Paul is innocent and this whole thing is unnecessary. It's not only absurd, as he says, but it would probably get Festus into trouble to send Paul as a prisoner to Rome without saying why, without specifying the charges. So on to chapter 26, verse 1. Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. The Greek word for make his defense is apologeomai. It's the Greek word. And it's where we get our word apology from. But it doesn't mean the same thing. It doesn't mean what, uh, what we mean by apologize. When we apologize, we're saying so we're sorry for something. Admitting guilt, asking forgiveness. Apologeomai means to speak in your own defense against charges presumed to be false, to defend yourself, in other words. It's related to our, our Christianese word apologetics. Apologetics is the reasoned arguments or writings in justification of something, specifically our Christian faith. Jesus spoke about defending ourselves in front of rulers and authorities, kings and governors for his namesake, and how the Holy Spirit can speak through us to share the truth of the gospel. Luke 12, verse 11, Jesus is speaking. He says, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And later in Luke 21, verse 12, Jesus speaking again, But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute, persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony, so make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. This is exactly what was happening to Paul. In these verses, Jesus is telling his disciples 
and us that he will be there for us in difficult situations. He's saying, don't overly rehearse your testimony and worry about the details of what you're going to say when you're formally called to defend your faith. But let God's Spirit lead you. But what he's not saying is, don't have a defense of the gospel ready when someone asks, or don't defend yourself when your faith is attacked. He's not saying that. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. But how do we do that? How can we be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that is in us, and especially with gentleness and respect? Well, let's see what Paul did. So back, back to Acts, verse 2. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate. This is Paul speaking now. I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that... I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So this is Paul, Paul's polite introduction. King Agrippa was Jewish, so he did know a lot about Jewish and customs and Jewish customs and controversial issues, certainly more than the Roman leaders like Festus and Felix before him. Paul's defense was tailored to his audience, specifically the king, but as we'll see, to the other important people in the auditorium as well. This points to an important reason we should pay attention to the Holy Spirit when we're speaking to people about our faith. He knows their hearts in every detail of their lives, and we don't. When Paul was speaking, he was using more classical grammar, and Luke was writing it with a more literary style because Paul was speaking formally to a distinguished audience in a formal setting. This is something good speakers always try to do, match the style of the presentation with the audience they're presenting to. Paul continued in verse 4, So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee, according to the strictest sect of our religion. Paul had grown up and been strictly educated under the law in Jerusalem by the leading teacher of his day. This fact was well known by the Jewish leadership. Paul describes his backstory again a little bit in Philippians 3, 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. And back to Acts in verse 6. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Wait, what hope? What promise? But this is the whole crux of the matter. God had promised to bless the whole world through Abraham back in Genesis 12:13 God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God had promised to send the Messiah, his son, to bring peace in Isaiah 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, 
and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, and then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is, he's talking about peace, not just the absence of war, but peace with God in our hearts. Shalom, completeness. Nothing broken, nothing missing, as Pastor James says. God had promised eternal life, sharing, starting with his resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In Acts 24, 15, Paul is speaking, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In verse 8, why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So this, this is a rhetorical question. What Paul is saying here is, God raises people from the dead. Why don't you believe it? <laughs> and he's referring to the fact that God brought Jesus Christ back to life after he had been executed. The Jewish Pharisees believed that God could, could raise the dead, but they didn't believe that Jesus was alive. The Jewish Sadducees, who were most of the ruling Jews, did not even believe that God could raise the dead. Jesus is speaking to the Sadducees in Matthew 22, 31. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Verse 9. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many hostile things to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, Paul, I think when I, when I thought about this, part here. I, th I think that Paul was truly humble to be able to share this part of his testimony. What, but what is humility? Humility can be thought of as an aspect of truthfulness, neither exaggerating nor denigrating the truth of what one is. Humility is the opposite of pride or arrogance. Throughout my career in computer programming, I tried to use the approach that God had taught me in school that I talked about earlier. I know that I am prone to make mistakes. How can I rearrange the problem to reduce the chance of making mistakes, or at least make them easier to fix? I call it humility at work. And strangely enough, humility is not generally considered positive in computer programming circles. <laughs> at least it wasn't in the 80s and 90s. And the way that software works today or, or doesn't work makes me think that nothing has changed in this area. <laughs> Pride and arrogance are way more common. I believe that the success I had as a software developer was based on humility, whether it's by encapsulating concepts or solving a problem only once, or the classic KISS, keep it simple, stupid, or Occam's razor, if you've ever heard of that, simplest is best. But I, any, any way, I am certain that you cannot go wrong by practicing humility. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. 
Acts 26, verse 10. Paul is speaking, continuing, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, even to foreign cities. Paul used to arrest, torture, imprison, and kill Christians, people who were his closest friends now. He probably had someone else do the dirty work for him at the time. When he says, I tried to force them to blaspheme, what, what he means is he tried to get them to deny their faith. This is just what his accusers wanted him to do now. This is an example of this in Acts 7, 58. When they had driven Stephen out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. It's Paul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called, out, called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. He died. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So back to verse 12. While so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So we've read this before. It's Paul's encounter of the road to Damascus. But wait. The voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul, wait, Paul was persecuting Jesus? By harassing believers like that, Paul was persecuting persecuting Christ himself. And this, this verse says it's hard to kick against the goads. I kind of always wondered what that meant. Apparently, it was a standard proverb. This is a goad. <laughs> it's basically just a sharp stick to keep the ox or donkey moving forward. It's not really sharp, it's just sharp enough. But like an animal futilely resisting the poke of sharp sticks, Paul was resisting the Holy Spirit. God's plans cannot be turned aside by anyone. In verse 15, Paul said, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And that I am, that's, that's Jesus' is God. Ego emi in Greek. The same thing. God said to Moses in Genesis 3, 14, I am who I am, he said. Thus you, shall, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Paul, Paul got it. Verse 16, But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Jesus said that he had appointed Paul to be a minister or servant and a witness, one who provides testimony of what Paul would see and other things that God would show him. 
even though Jesus may have asked more of Paul than he does of most of us, all of us Christians are called to be servants and witnesses. That's what an ambassador does. We are ambassadors for Christ. Acts 1.8, Jesus speaks to the disciples, says to them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. You know, Paul had told this story uh, in another place or two in Acts, and, but on this one he didn't mention the part about him being stricken blind or Ananias in Damascus. But he is referring to some scripture from the Old Testament. Ezekiel 2.1 says, Then God said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak to you. I am sending you to the sons of Israel. Verse 17, Jesus is speaking still. Rescuing, them from the, rescuing you, Paul, from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Up to that day, God had already rescued Paul from mobs in Damascus, Jerusalem, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Philippi, Thessalonica, Ephesus, and Jerusalem again. And those are just the places that are mentioned in Acts. But once more, once more the references to Jeremiah uh, verse one, chapter 1, verse 7. But the Lord said to me, Everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver them. Back in verse 17, when he says, I am sending you, the Greek word is apostello, where we get the word apostle. It means to dispatch someone for the achievement of some objective, to, to send away, to send out, to send a message. And here's the message, the gospel. Verse 18 to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So I want to break this verse down a little bit. To open their eyes means to make the Jews and the Gentiles, everyone in other words, be able to understand spiritual truth. This isn't something that people can do by themselves without God's help. Because in verse, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Back in, back in this verse, it says made, that they may turn from darkness to light. The Greek word for turn, for turn is epistrepho, which means to turn, to change direction, return, or repent. So whenever you think of repent, that's, that's what he's saying. They're saying turn. Knowing God's truth allows people to repent, to turn from the darkness of sin to the light of salvation, and to be freed from Satan's power, and instead live under God's protection. Without being able to understand God's truth, people can only live in spiritual darkness, in Satan's domain. When we turn away from sin toward God, he will forgive us our sins and give us eternal life in heaven, together with Christ and all the other believers. 
That's what is meant by receive an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. It's very similar to what Paul writes to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God proved that he has the power to do this by raising Jesus from the dead, and he has given us his spirit as a guarantee. Ephesians 1.13, In Christ you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Like Paul, God changed my life when I believed in Jesus. He continues to change me today to make me more like his son, and with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in me. And I want others to know God's love and forgiveness so he can change their lives too. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. Your mercy endures forever. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending our, your son so that we can live in eternity with you. Thank you for your forgiveness and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, check out our website at www.silverlakebaptist.org.